This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 553 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Merit Cassell. Now, Merritt is a veteran law enforcement officer who's worked with multiple agencies in an array of specialty units. So we discuss a host of topics from his time in the gang unit, prostitution, the drug epidemic, mental health in the first responder community, and so much more. Before we get to this powerful conversation, as I say every single week, Please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 550 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said... I introduce to you Merit Cassell. Enjoy. Well, Merit, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast today. And secondly, it's nice to put you on the other side of the microphone. Appreciate it, man. Yeah. 
it's going to be a good show. It is. It is. So for people listening, I was a guest on your show, Brownie and Blue, which is amazing. So I'm really, really excited to, to spin it around on you now. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm in uh, Herndon, Virginia. So in the great state of Virginia, but northern Virginia, Fairfax County, near D.C. Beautiful. Well, as you know, I like to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. So I was born in uh, El Salvador uh, when I was, let's see, when I was two, I was given up for adoption during war because there was a civil war that broke out. And at the time, um, there was a lot of unrest. And so there was a lot of children that were being put in orphanages because uh, families couldn't fend for them. So from my understanding, I've never met her, uh, but from my understanding and my origin stories that my mom, my birth mother gave me up at two because she couldn't take care of me. And she was also, I think, 16 or 17 years old. So I was given up at two. I was in an orphanage, Catholic orphanage. And then in that Catholic orphanage, um, I bounced around. I think I went from a little town called Zacatecoluca and then I went to San Salvador. Well, at that time, three years, so at five, my aunt, who is my mom's sister now, she worked for USAID. And so she actually was down in El Salvador. Um, I always say, you're not in a war-torn country doing aid. Like More than likely, you were CIA or doing something kind of backdoors. Uh, but Anyway, so she was down there. She knew that my mom wanted to adopt. And for whatever reason, my mother here wanted to adopt a foreign uh, born child. And so she didn't want a baby. And so I fit kind of all the things that um, my mom wanted to adopt. And at a nearby orphanage, there I was. So through Catholic charities, I had to, um, they had to go through a lot of different things. And they, they got me here to the U.S. around five years old. Uh, my mother was uh, married at the time to, and my mother's a former law enforcement officer as well. She was married to a, a guy who I, and, you know, just to be honest, I don't call him my father because he was really never somebody that was there for me. Um, he was a very abusive man, physically, emotionally. He was actually a secret service agent um, for about 20, 30 years. And so he um, left when I was about seven, eight, uh, thankfully. And, uh, I don't have any siblings, so I may have a half sibling. I haven't really looked into all that. I've done the 23 and me and the ancestry.com. And I've found like, uh, some, you know, distant cousins that live in the U S and I'm in touch with two of them. Um, but as far as me here, uh, with my adoptive mother, I don't have any siblings. I grew up as a single kid and um, here in Fairfax. And then, um, yeah, you know, that's pretty much my origin story there. And then the family dynamic, it was me and my mom. And my mom was every bit of somebody who is, <laughs> she's more of a dad than a mom, if that makes sense. Like she was a hard woman until this day. She's a hard woman. Um, so I learned a lot from her, good and bad, but mainly the good parts as far as just determination. She was the first female to integrate 
the police department in Fairfax County. Um, she is also one of the highest ranking women uh, when she made, I think, captain. She was the highest ranking female uh, on the in northern Virginia, D.C. area at the time. And so she was just a very driven uh, person uh, in everything that she did and very successful. So those are things that, you know, I strive to be. Um, yeah. I, you know, like I said, I mean, it was just me and her mainly. And then I played sports coming up, team atmosphere, did a lot with that, played in college, college basketball. I played at a two-year school in West Virginia. And then I went to Mary Washington down in Fredericksburg and played there. And then from there, I went to the police academy and, you know, had a had a good 20-year career. So... Well, going back to El Salvador for a second, because there's an interesting connection with what you did later in your career. Did you ever go back to that country to visit? I did. Uh, I went back 2007. So I was, man, I can't do the math right now, James. But, but <laughs> I was like in my 20s. You were younger. <laughs> I was already, yeah, I was already working with the department. And at the time, I just wanted to go back and just kind of see if I could find any um, history, find any blood relatives and uh it didn't happen but yeah i went back and it was eye-opening man so the beaches were beautiful you know everything was beautiful the land um the one thing that was really just that stood out was just how poor the people were though there was no middle class you know it was very much either you have money or you don't and you know that is pretty typical of third world countries but to be in it and to kind of understand where my roots come from, you know, the possibility of where my mother, um, why she gave me up, I, I <coughs> excuse me, I, I could understand. So with you uh, working in gangs, and we'll get to that, obviously, when we get into your career, one that you mentioned before we start recording was MS-13. Now, you know, I think it's important to learn about the events leading up to some of the most horrendous, you know, violence that we see. So, for example, the Somali pirates, when you reverse engineer, there's actually an overfishing of their coasts in, you know, Somalia, and therefore they were starving and not able to make money, and that pushed them into crime. You mentioned this, the uh, Civil War. What is the history of MS-13? Because they're obviously known as, you know, one of the most brutal gangs that, you know, on the planet. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's a very, the answer is easy. They didn't start in El Salvador and most people think that they did. Um, so if you took, uh, if you took that civil war, you had a mi mass migration of, uh, asylum and refugees that went to the U S some Salvadorians went to California and LA. When they settled there, they were surrounded by Mexicans mainly. And the Mexicans at the time were, had a, you know, they, they had their own gang kind of community set up already. So like most refugees that come into a country, <clears throat> the Salvadorians got preyed on. And initially the group that was, you know, the origins of the group of MS-13, they were actually called the Mara Stoners. 
you know, Mata just meaning gang, but they were a gang of stoners that listened to rock music. <laughs> and that was it. Um, and from there, they were helping protect their community from other, you know, people, other Mexicans, other, you know, whatever. So they started going to jail. When they started going to jail based off of the protection, you know, assaults and stuff like that, they had to, in a sense, form an allegiance because when you're in jail, you, you know, like, you know, for you, I mean, you're, you're a Brit, but if you go to jail here in the U S you're a white guy. And so therefore you're going to have to find a way to live, you know, without getting picked on or without getting beat or possibly killed. So you will go to, you know, possibly an Aryan kind of nation type of gang, um, a white gang. Well, in the jail, in order for them to survive, they started to hang out and, in a sense, be under the allegiance of the Mexican mafia, which the Mexican mafia ran the jails. And so the Mexican mafia, if you look at MS-13, the M is the 13th letter of the alphabet. And so, so exactly. So when that happened and they started coming back out, Truco, Salvatruco is just a Salvadorian. It's just a slang term for, you know, a gang of Salvadorian brothers. And so that's how they started. And so that's how MS-13 came about. Well, the reason it became such a huge problem in El Salvador is because once they started doing a lot of crimes here, they started getting deported back. So when they got deported back to El Salvador, they did what? I mean, they only they, they did exactly what they knew how to do, which is to recruit, um, influence younger kids, um, you know, take that kind of lifestyle. And now you're breeding it into what I would call a hot zone of, you know, very disenfranchised youth. And it looks very appealing because initially you're filling a gap, right? You're filling a familial gap. So because there's a lot of, you know, just kind of even when I was born in El Salvador, I still have pictures where I see like, you know, kind of like a, a roving uh, bunch of group of kids, like homeless kids that are just kind of walking around. And so, you know, you're introducing that kind of gang mentality into that culture um, now you're introducing something that's more of like an ideology at the time. And then it just blows up. So you have MS 13 that started off as just protecting their own and being a, a group of guys that wanted to just listen to rock music and smoke weed. Um, and then they're protecting themselves and then they're going into jail, swearing allegiance to the Mexican mafia, getting, getting that sworn allegiance under the M and then they come out and then they're MS-13 and then boom, you're committing crimes, you're doing all this stuff. And then now you're getting deported back to El Salvador. And now El Salvador is the is known for, you know, when you say El Salvador, most people, first thing they say is, ah, MS, you know, um, that's the first thing they think about. So, yeah, it's an interesting origin story. And I think most people would say, oh, it started in El Salvador, but it never did. It's almost like it is. It's not almost. It is. We as the U.S. based on everything that's happened and de deportation 
we deported the problem back to El Salvador and that's how it started. Yeah, well, it's such an interesting perspective as well because you take a tragedy, which is a civil war. And again, you know, like you said, when there's this huge disparity, I think I remember seeing a study and like the the happiest countries on the planet had the smallest gap between their poorest and their wealthiest. Now, you know, you look at the US here and think about our most affluent, you know, billionaires. I mean, on a scale, that's a fucking giant gap. You know, a lot of people sprinkled in between. But so you have a civil war, then you have a broken prison system that you come out worse than you go in. Then you have the fucking failure of the drug prohibition where you you basically monetize and empower the underworld. So, I mean, it's a very unique perspective and it's tragic that, as you said, they should have come to the US and become better people. But it really is a great kind of lens on some of the downfalls of elements of our society that a refugee can come in and actually leave a hundred times worse than when they arrived. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, and it is, you know, obviously there's, there's probably tons of success stories that the refugee came in. I mean, I, you know, that, that started their businesses and now they're thriving and, um, all types of that, you know, but unfortunately for whatever reason, Salvadorians, because MS has become such a, I mean, even today, like that's the biggest gang, right? You know, and what's crazy is in El Salvador, they've actually designated them as a terrorist organization. Um, you know, to me, that's just mind boggling. And all starts from what we talked about, you know, and uh, starts from just protecting and poverty and, you know, going into the jail system. And there is a brokenness to the jail system, definitely. Um, you know, it does stigmatize you to the point where, how can you survive once you get out, you know, depending on even just a weed charge, you know, we can go down a rabbit hole with that, even with all the stuff that I've done in, um, you know, just narcotic work and stuff like that. It, it's, it's really a shame that I think we're moving in a better direction. Um, you have people that still want to just, you know, make everything illegal. And to me, that doesn't make any sense because we have studies, if you look at the Portugal study, um, where they went to the American model, right? They went to the American model where they were just hammering people for the littlest things and they were sending them to jail. And when I say little things like dime bags, you know, or, you know, an ounce of weed and they're going to jail and they have these really extreme sentences and they come out and they have nothing, you know, the same thing, stigmatized. And they go right back to exactly what got them in jail because that's the only thing that they were able to do. Now, there's a lot of variation in that, right? Like, that's not the only thing that they could do. It's just that, you know, you could go into choosing and all this other stuff. But ultimately, they said this isn't working because they see a rise in the use of drugs and addiction rates. And so, they were like, well, what do we do? <laughs> and so what did they do? They went the opposite and they started decriminalizing all the drugs and they started actually pouring money and, you know, they started redistributing the money to programs of, you know, actual therapists and people that were, you know, new addiction and knew how it worked. And not only that, but just even psychologists that knew that, Gabor Mate, which is one of my favorite people to listen to, 
even talks about that, you know, addiction isn't a thing of like, oh, it's not this DNA that we think it is. Addiction is based off of pain and based off of trauma, big T or little t traumas that we've experienced as kids, you know, as infants from the day we're born till about five or six years old. And some people have some horrendous, horrendous things that happen to them in their life between those ages. And those are the developmental ages to the point where those things can set now to where if something's introduced, so I'll give you an example and I'll put, I'll put this out there. It, it, you know, for me, when I was learning about all this, um, when I was, I never looked at my adoption as trauma, but it is, I was given up at two years old. I have a daughter who's six. I could never imagine giving her up at two. (laughs) And I went back and read my uh, social work. Um, The social worker had to do a write-up and had to do a study on me in order for my parents in the U.S. to adopt me because there was nothing there. There was no information about it. So in that was very, um, it was depressing to read, to be honest, because the whole thing was talking about how I needed to be loved and I needed to be in an environment where I could be nurtured. And from two years old, I can only imagine like a lot of kids and a lot of people that are born in such um, depraved conditions, right? And they're developing and they're developing a way to not be engaged from a nurturing standpoint. And then from there, you have, you know, all these other things that happen. And for me, when I was eight, yeah, when I was eight, my parents divorced here in the US and my father, even before that, he beat my mom and I, and he was actually just like a, he was a degenerate of a person. Right. Um, and then when he left, you know, I was sexually abused by a neighbor kid down the street and he was 14. (laughs) So you have, and, and I'm not saying this to be like, Oh, feel sorry for me. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is that if let's say drugs got introduced to me at that point in time or alcohol or whatever, not, not even then, but just even down the road, the propensity for me to be able to mask the pain that I have gone through with those things would have been a lot higher and a lot easier for me to get to those things and say, this is, you know, it's not DNA. It's really about all these things that have happened to me, but yet I have no idea how to deal with them. So therefore, how am I going to deal with it? Well, I'm going to deal with something that's going to make me not feel that pain. Right. And so that's what I look at. So ultimately to go around the Portugal model did all this. They, they started to get these therapists. They started to get these programs. They started to get people you know, a sense of belonging and they started to get them jobs and um, vocation and boom, they started seeing the numbers dwindle in addiction rate, right? Because they took an investment of, instead of making these people an outcast, they made them part of the landscape and they helped them, you know, they invested in the people. Um, So you know, and I don't know what the size of Portugal is as a, as it compares to like a state in the U S but it's a model, you know? And so when I look at what's going on here in the U S 
I mean, it's a it's a a drug war, like a drug war. We're not winning that war. <laughs> you know, we've been losing that war since the day it even was incepted. You know, as a drug war. So. Yeah, well, thank you for your perspective, firstly. I mean, and also for your courage and telling your story. Because, I mean, it just, it frames it perfectly. You know, as I always tell people, like, we were all once preschoolers, you know, in a kindergarten somewhere or not, you know, outside, whatever. But that age, none of us dreamt of being homeless or prostitutes or addicts or gamblers or wife beaters or murderers or any of these things. We were too busy just laughing and chasing balls and doing things that kids do. But things happen to our children. And don't get me wrong, of course, there are those absolute anomalies where the brain chemistry is, you know, is, is already broken for whatever reason. But aside from that, the other 99 point whatever, you know, it's what happens to us. And so I agree 100 percent. You know, to me, addiction is, is, is a mental health issue, not a criminal issue. And when you look at the origin story of drug prohibition, which I've talked about numerous times, um, you know, it's based on racism and job justification, and there's no actual real sense to it whatsoever. And then you look at the rapid expansion of the prison population, you know, all over the world, you know, the Western world. I mean, you, if you want to annotate a real failure, just look at drug, you know, the, the war on drugs, as you said. And if only someone would write a holy scripture or some sort of religious book about helping people, maybe we would all be. <laughs> have a guidebook because I don't think that Jesus is like, that guy's an addict, put him in prison. I don't think Judah was or Buddha or Muhammad or any of those. But for some reason, yeah. we swayed away from the very religious doctrines that we seem to hang on so tightly to in the Western world and the Eastern world. But yet when it comes to treating people, more often than not, it goes the other way. And this, you know, obviously you can see it's in the Middle East and, you know, the Far East and all, all different places where you know, some sort of power and corruption has completely swayed common sense. So yeah, I mean, you know, I love I love it when people say, what happened to you, not what's wrong with you? You know, that's what we need to be asking. And if we care about our fellow people, all your energy should have be into helping that person heal. But right now, you know, more often than not, we're, as, as you and I get to see on the streets where we work, you know, we, we take those people and we destroy them. We don't, we don't heal them. Right. No, you're exactly right. And um, there's a, uh, have you heard of Peter Crone? I have not, I don't think. Peter Crone is, man, he's, he's amazing. Um, I don't know his exact title. He may be, uh, he calls himself like a mind architect. And he talks about things that deal with like your subconscious and those limitations and like setting you free from that. But um, I was listening to him talk one day and he, came, he, had a, he had a quote and that quote has stuck with me um, since I've heard it. And it was one of those things where when I heard it, it changed my mindset because before I heard that quote, uh, James, I was in, in a way kind of like, oh, you know, poor me, you know, woe is me type thing. Um, not, not to like some crazy extent, but you know, you tell that story and, you know, sometimes you have people that tell stories and they may be like, James, I, I just want your, you know, I just want you to feel sorry for me. And I'm not saying, you know, hey, you know, we can talk about that on another, <laughs> another show. But regardless, though, what he said to me, what changed uh, my mindset is that he said, what happened to you happened to you. And nothing else could have happened because guess what? It didn't. And that's it. 
That's the quote. You know, that's such a simple quote, but that quote in itself states, you can't change anything about your life. You can't change anything of how it happened and why it happened. And I think for me personally, I always had that question. Why did this happen to me? How did this happen to me? Why would my mom give me up at two years old? Why would she do that? Doesn't she look for me? I I used to have all these questions. For whatever reason, that quote, when I heard that from Peter Crone, it, it, uh, it was like a, it was like a silver bullet. It made me understand that what I'm doing is all I'm doing is I'm taking a, I'm taking a big shit on what I have right now. That's it. Right. It's made me the person, instead of being strengthened by everything that's happened to me, I've been weakened because all I'm doing is thinking about these questions as opposed to being strengthened by these questions, by by everything that's happened to me and being like, I'm a survivor. Like I've, I've gone through a lot of shit and I'm here and I'm thriving. And that's really where the importance needs to be in my thinking. So yeah. um, Yeah. that, that was one thing that just popped into my head because I think we as individuals and just people in general, we can always just say like, you know, these what ifs and have all these questions about how we're going to make our lives better and all this other stuff when, you know, what have you done to where you're at now? Cause even if you're an addict, if you're, if you're, you know, in a sense kind of withdrawing yourself or weaning off, like, you know, Imagine just having the reframing of like, yeah, I'm doing better. You know, uh, I'm doing better. I, I used once this month, you know, as opposed to, oh, I fell off the wagon. I'm back to being a shithead again. You know, um, yeah, I think it's important. I think it's important how we talk to ourselves. Yeah, no, I, I think one thing that I've kind of one kind of idea, I guess, is popped in my head a few times is there are reasons, but they're not excuses. So no one can undo the fact that you were sexually assaulted as a child, that you were, you know, that basically abandoned at two years old. I mean, those are things. And to totally negate them is also dangerous because that is definitely, you know, one of the one of the milestones that, that has shaped you to where you are now. But like you said, being defined by that past, a past that you physically cannot change in any way, shape or form is just, you know, a road to madness. You're, you're never, ever going to do that. So as you said, taking those those things, those facts, those experiences, that history, and being proud of still being here and, you know, understanding the resilience that you have. And then, as you mentioned earlier, like honing in on the gratitude, like what we do have. You know, you woke up in America, you know, not Somalia or somewhere that might be in the middle of God knows what at the moment. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, those are very, very important things. But I think what's really opened my eyes in the last five years now and this is this is the fifth anniversary today so um of this podcast is how many people in our professions have those kind of childhoods how many have been sexually abused specifically as a child but then add in being around domestic violence and addiction and homelessness and i mean god i've heard so many stories on here you know i had i had a very very fortunate childhood but even then through no fault of anyone's. I was in a house fire when I was four, almost killed by a wall that fell on our car, well, next to our car. Um, God, was I like probably 10 then? You know, so again, some near-death experiences amongst a pretty damn good childhood where I wasn't abused. 
but our profession attracts hurt people, you know? So then you take, for example, Merit's story, your story, and you haven't even put a uniform on yet, and you haven't addressed that trauma, and then you walk through the door of a police department, a fire department, you know, the whatever military branch you join, you're or now going to compound all the shit that you brought through. So I think understanding our childhood, understanding our past, and as you said, not as an excuse, but as a as a valid reason that you may not have seen combat in Iraq, and you're wondering why the fuck did I fall apart? You may be in a, a country police department where you give tickets most of the time, but if we negate our childhood side, we set ourselves up for failure of understanding what comes next. That's uh yes. I, I couldn't I mean I'm sitting over here putting my fist up in the air, agreeing with everything <laughs> you're saying. Because but but here's the problem too. Uh part of all that between you and me, because we are let's let's uh because we've been through our own shit and we've actually faced our own shit for whatever reason, however we got there, we were brave enough to understand what we were before that was not brave, right? We were just people kind of living what we were expected to be, which was be this hard ass and, uh, you know, you're a firefighter and, oh, everybody loves you guys. And there's nothing wrong with what happens, you know, with firefighters and, and, and cops. It's, you know, um, Billy Badass. I can, you know, shoot the shot you know, that nobody else can. And, you know, I write many tickets and I lock people up and all this shit. And um, at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with the person, you know, and what we had to have gone through, we can sit here and have an honest conversation between, you know, in a sense, not strangers, but, you know, I don't see you every day. You know, I, I, I've shared more with you on this podcast than I would with anybody that I would have probably in the past called a friend. <laughs> you know what I mean? Usually that sharing is like, you know, oh, you don't talk about any of that stuff. And me and you have come to learn that that's not what this is about. That's not what healing's about. That's not what connection is about. And, um, you know, we're trying to get this message out. And the problem is, is how do we get people? And I'm, I'm turning the tables because I'm sitting here asking you the question. Uh, how do we get law enforcement and first responders, you know, to a point where they can genuinely feel comfortable about being vulnerable and having real conversations to where it's going to make their life so much better? And not only with each other, but even with command staff and people that are in power, you know, how, do, how does that change? So one analogy that I've talked about recently, so if people have listened to consecutive episodes, I apologize for me boring you with the same <laughs> same <laughs> analogy again. It's a problem when you do three episodes a week. Um, <clears throat> but is the yin-yang. I think I've got it right now. I think the uh, the yin is the soft and the yang is the white, which is the hard, because um, I had to research it after I butchered it over and over again. But so the way this kind of two lenses to to talk to our population. The first one is understanding as an athlete. If you have a a maelstrom in your mind, you're not going to perform at the highest level. So, for example, some NFL quarterback, if he's worrying about all the shit that he hasn't addressed and his mind is a spinning, he's never gonna never gonna win any games. You know, he's he's gonna be subpar the whole time. So, for your alpha Uber operator. 
there's that lens. Like you will be a better operator if you actually address and quieten your mind so that you can focus and get into that flow state, God forbid you need to. On the other side, for me, it's the compassion element that brought us into this job. Like no one joins the law enforcement because of the great pay, you know, or fire, you know, no one joins fire because of the great hours. That's a, that's a big masquerade, you know, it's, they're fucking awful. Anyone that's worked more than a few years in the fire service can attest to that. Um, we come into these professions because we actually want to make a difference in the world. And that is very, very much the yin, the black, the soft part of the human experience. When you're in a gunfight, when I'm going into a structure fire, it's it's yang. It's all hard. You know, we have to get this done. No time for emotion. You put your head down, you bite down your mouth guard and you fucking get what's done, you know, get what needs to be done, done. But after, it's that compassion element. And like I tell people, um, I used to say a black circle, but I guess it would be a white circle. What we have ended up doing, I think, as, especially as men, is we bought into the facade that it's just a white circle. There is no yin. There is no soft part. It's all just the hard, you know, rah, rah, rah. And so we don't, we lose compassion with the people that we we respond to in the street. A number of times I've seen medics that are just totally burnt out and screaming at patients. Um, and obviously there's enough videos of law enforcement to, <laughs> to show a similar thing. Um, but then it's also self-compassion. So, the, you know, the yin yang exists for a reason because that's how people are that's how so many elements of life are homeostasis in the body but if you believe that you just become a white circle you're going to end up harming someone else or yourself so putting that compassion putting that soft that gentle that healing element back into that circle i think is how we need to frame a high level operator a high level firefighter a paramedic you know seal whatever it is because if we don't give ourselves the compassion after as well, we just saw what we saw, you know, then it just continues to eat away at us. And I think one of the big things to blame is, is I mean, I blame Hollywood, but, you know, just that overall um, genre of fake masculinity. They talk about toxic masculinity. That's what they should be talking about. John Wayne, all these people that never fucking served, that everyone idolizes. Oh, he never cries. What's well, because it's fucking acting, dipshit. It's not real. <laughs> <laughs> real men do cry. Right. So, but I, so I think it's, I mean, I've just monologued for a long time, but I think that's it is understanding that for us to perform at a higher level, we have to refine the compassion that took us into these professions at the first place. That's, that's, uh, I, I love that. That's very poignant because. The first thing that I thought about as far as compassion is what I realized through my through my years of therapy work and getting into me is being the self-compassion is so important. And the reason that I got into law enforcement, most people would say, oh, it's because your mom and it, it, or because, you know, your adoptive father was law enforcement and she was law enforcement. It's like, well, that's the easy answer. But when I started digging into it. The reason I was gravitating towards law enforcement is because I ultimately, as figuratively, follow me here, figuratively, I was protecting, I was going into a profession to protect that little kid that was being given up at age two, that was being beaten by his adoptive father, that was being sexually assaulted at age eight or nine. You know, those are the reasons why, because I 
started to become a protector early on in life, I stood up for other kids and the weak kids and all this. And so when I got into law enforcement, it was a natural progression thinking that I was just going to do it because I want to protect the community, which is true. That's the altruistic aspect of it, but it all bred from the pain and the protection that I wasn't afforded when I was growing up. So, you know, that's in, in a very kind of roundabout way, James, that's me saying to you with this yin and yang is that I agree with that. And when you talked about the self-compassion part, that's where I think the disconnect with a lot of law enforcement and people in first responder land is that they're not self-compassionate because they haven't even gotten to their own issues, their own stuff that got them into, because you spoke earlier that you spoke into a lot of first responders that have been through a lot of shit. They've been through a ton of stuff. And yet somehow they get into these professions or they get into the military and they got so much shit. And so then there's that disconnect once they deal with more shit and more shit and more shit. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's no soft part. There's no self, there's no self-compassion because they don't understand any of that stuff because it's all been told. Like you said, it's all been told that this is not what you do. If you're in this profession, this is not what's looked at as a good thing, right? So, yeah, I mean, that's a perfect analogy. I don't care whether you've done it three or four times in different shows, man. I, I, I agree with it. I love it. <laughs> well, I think the other thing that I have talked about before, and I think it would just make so much sense, is understanding that when you know, the people that say, yeah, I'll run towards gunfire, yeah, I'll go into a burning building, um, they're probably going to have some areas in their past that were, you know, certainly raise raise the heart rate a little bit when you hear about it you know whether it was all good and they were just you know street racing or whatever it was you know they were seeking adrenaline one way or or more often than not you know elements of trauma as well but understanding that if you are able to process that before you enter the profession something i talked about someone the other day you would be an asset the problem is i don't know about you but for me i did numerous entrance tests because I, I work for multiple departments. And so, you know, the psych tests and the polygraph, I mean, such a fucking waste of money. And really what it's about <laughs> is just checking boxes so they can say, well, you know, we tested them. I didn't know they were going to do, you know, whatever. Instead of actually understanding that someone who's had a past like you have, like I have, is an asset, but they need to be able to process that. So taking that same money, getting rid of those stupid tests, and putting it into maybe some counseling sessions as people go through their probationary year or orientation, you know, and there may be nothing. It may be just something purely as opening conversations and developing a relationship with a counselor. But it's also going to be a place for some people to go, well, I've never told anyone this, but. And so now we're able to to kind of build resilient men and women in the responder professions that are now, you know, created a... <sighs> a lot more space for the trauma that they're going to endure for the sleep deprivation, for the organizational stress, as we'll talk about later, all these other elements that are absolutely inbuilt into the professions that we do. Yeah. Yep. No, um, man, I, I think we can go, get into so much, you know, as far as all this. And one of the things though, is um, I kept thinking about as you were talking and not to shamelessly plug my podcast, but to plug it, I guess. Please <laughs> plug <a> away. 
uh, brownie and blue. Regardless, I, I um I interviewed it, I interviewed um, licensed clinical uh, social worker therapist uh, two of them that lead the resiliency center for Prince William County's police department, which is a county that is right next to Fairfax, big, big department. And within first, I think within a couple of years or within a year, they had two on duty homicides where officers got killed. And then they had two uh, officers that killed themselves. So within that year, they had four people that died in the department. Crazy. Um, in a non, uh, like a non-economic year where they have to go and, you know, ask for money, they went to the county board and they were like, what are we doing about the mental health and everything that's going on? Well, they got a whole bunch of money allotted to them. And so the way they use that is they actually have a brick and mortar standalone resiliency center where it is filled with uh, therapists and some of those therapists um, do other things like acupuncture, uh, cognitive therapy. You know, they, I mean, it's, it's, their program is vast, but part of it and what you just talked about is part of their program is that they'll actually go into the academies and they'll start making relationships with the FTIs that go and deal with the field training instructors or the field training officers that deal with the new recruit. And what they do is they mirror up with those recruits and they actually go and not only talk to them, but they also talk to their families. And then on top of that, they actually do an update where they follow them throughout not only the academy, but then once their first year, they actually have a mandatory MIR in service where they have to go and they have to do a, a mental health um, kind of check-in. You know, they have to do it. It's not something that is you know, that they can't say, oh, I don't, I don't want to do that. The whole department, it got to a point now where they follow these people's careers. They actually go and check in and the department's culture has changed. And one of the examples they told me is that they realized things were working is because they were on a, one of the guys who's a um, therapist, he was doing a ride along and I forget what type of call it was, but either way, he was on a call. Um, and an officer just comes up to him and says, Hey, uh, when can I meet with you? You know, I want to talk to you and very openly in front of other officers that were there. And to me, that is such a huge difference. Um, just in that little thing, right. Uh, that example, because that's how it should be, you know, that's how it should be, you know, uh, it shouldn't be, you know, Oh, I need to go talk to somebody. And then all of a sudden you're the butt of everybody's joke. You know, you're the butt of like, oh, you know, look at James. James is one of those guys. Like, I don't know. We may have to give them a rubber gun, you know, stuff like that. And that's what happens. You know, you get you get stigmatized as, you know, the crazy person if you tell people you're going to actually talk to somebody to feel better. <laughs> so, you know, that that that's what I was thinking about when you were talking about that um, as far as like early on careers and following them. You know, there this this department, Prince William County, I will plug them all day long because they are doing an amazing, amazing job. And their whole program should literally be a model for what departments do across the board if they had the money. Well, that's so good to hear. And I, you know, firstly, like you said, changing the stigma, obviously that begins at the front door. You know, the academies definitely 
But um, the other thing as well that seems apparently obvious about what they're doing, and I've, I get it, you know, not everyone is the size of a whole county, but one of the problems that I'm seeing, I don't know if you are now, is there's an element where the stigma is kind of diminishing, but the almost the worst, you know, the much, much bigger problem is, well, where do I go? Oh, well, what insurance do you have? You know, oh, well, you know, let me find you a counselor. Oh, never mind. I've never worked with cops before. You know what I mean? So then you get into this and you've got someone who's in crisis and there's this crazy zigzag path to trying to find the right counselor. So to have that relationship from the beginning and not have to think, where am I going to go? You know where you're going to go. That building that you just mentioned is where you're going to go. That That's incredible. And I think that's that's something that, you know, not just the, the mental health, but the physical health too. Like, you know, people shouldn't have to fight for a gym in a department <laughs> where lives are at stake. People shouldn't have to fight exactly. for a mental health facility for a department where lives are at stake. So, you know, I think our priorities are so backwards sometimes. No, yeah, agree. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't agree more. I mean, I think it's all connected, right? The mental health with the physical health. You know, I know for me, if I don't, if I don't get up and get a workout in in the morning, I'm, I'm, I'm like a completely different person than if, uh, than if, you know, I do get it in. So, you know, for me, it's one of those, like, it has to be a routine type thing, you know? And I think that's what, I think that's what helps as well. Like you have to have a good routine and you also have to have a good set of people that are around you to be able to help support that kind of routine. Because sometimes that routine could be a little, you know, it could get in the way depending on your family life. Um, But as long as you're, as long as you're healthy and you know what's going on as far as what you need. And I think one of the biggest things is uh, also the group aspect, you know, the group therapy type stuff. And, you know, I, I'll just kind of segue into it because you, you kind of brought it up as far as, you know, the insurance and all that stuff. Um, I went through a program called LETACOR, um, L-E-T-A-C-O-R. And Man, I'll tell you what, um, that was a life-changing, it was life-changing. And I can't really dig into like the specifics of the evolutions and the the activities of what they brought out um, in all of them. But um, just to give you an example, so LetaCore was a two-day thing. And it was all cops or retired, either on duty, like they're they're working or they're, you know, they're retired. And there were older guys. I was probably one of the younger, younger guys there. And they pretty much start off with, you know, some physical stuff and they talk to you, not talk to you. They kind of yell at you. They kind of get you in this kind of mindset of like, oh, like, oh shit, like where am I? You know? Um, and then those evolutions turn into things that dig deep um, because you have a, kind of a powwow after these, these sessions, these physicality stuff that point to a bigger thing. And you sit there with seven guys and these were seven strangers to me, except for one other guy that I knew he was the friend that actually, um, referred me, but either way, like everybody else was a stranger. And we got to these points where, and you ask these poignant questions, you know, you ask these questions from childhood, like we're talking about, and you're talking with these guys that are former SWAT, you know, guys that are former fed, um, you know, these, these, you know, <laughs> these guys that are operators 
And, you know, you think that they're hardcore and all this stuff. And you get to a point where you see the actual, and I hate to say this, but you see the little kid in them. That, and you get to that point where you see this child that is scared or vulnerable or, you know, um, it gets to a point where you connect on, you connect on such a deeper level uh, with these men. And at that point, I realized, you know, this is what cops need. They need a place to be able to go to not only feel like they're a man because you can do the physical stuff, but you do it as a team and you build this camaraderie. And then not only on top of that, you start talking about things because you've kind of broken down the body a little bit. And then hopefully you build up the mind because at that point, that's a break, right? <laughs> so that breaking kind of cause you to, to open up. And um, yeah, I mean, that right there, it was two days. And for me, it was life-changing because it talked about the four pillars, which is body, business, um, being, and balance. And so the being was, you know, how are you like spiritually? You know, what are you doing for yourself? Like, are you taking walks on your own? What, what are you going to do to be better? You know, some people don't have the time in the day, you know, to just sit there and just kind of meditate on what it is that whether it's nothing or whether it's something, right? Like just to have you time. Um, and then the balance was like, how are you attacking the stuff with family? You know, whether you're single or you're married or you have kids or you're divorced, what time are you giving to your family as quality time? And so you set, a, you, you set your own prescription and it's a challenge, right? Like if you really don't spend that much time with your kids, or if you really don't spend that much time with your wife or your girlfriend or whatever the case is, or haven't seen mom or whatever the case is, you, you give yourself that prescription to say, I'm going to take a walk with whoever, or I'm going to take a walk with the dog, with my family, you know, once or twice a week, you know? And then, so that's that balance with the being. And then the business is, what are you doing as an individual to better your family or yourself's position financially? Meaning, you know, are you doing a podcast? How are you monetizing on that podcast? Um, are you, you know, are you starting a nonprofit? Well, what are you going to do to advertise? How are you going to attack this? Are you uh, looking for a promotion? Well, have you been studying for the promotion? Do you know what's going to be on the process? All these different things, right? Because as people, we talk a lot, you know, oh, I want to do that. I wish I could do that. And it's like, no, like go and do it. That's, that's what that prescription is. And then, so bot, and then the last one, body, body is you, you've seen it law enforcement and first responders, they get fat as shit. <laughs> they get fat. They are some of the most, I've seen some law enforcement guys and gals. They are one of the most ridiculous examples of what not to be from a health standpoint, eating bags of donuts and eating shit in the midnight shift and doing all this crazy shit and, you know, gaining their, you know, cruiser ass as soon as they come out of the academy, you know, they've never been in better shape because guess what? They were actually forced to do something. Um, but, but yeah, the body is challenging you to do whatever level, if you've never run, then say you're going to go and walk 
you know, uh, 20 minutes a day or 20 minutes out of the, you know, three out of the seven days of the week. And then what happens is at the end of this, there's a coach that checks in and everybody's on this group chat and we hold each other accountable and we have shares about, you know, and we have meetings about how are we meeting these goals? You know, are we really doing these things? And not only that, but you're building more camaraderie and you're building that connection to the point where now you have other brothers and sisters that can hold you accountable. And not only that, they could be close by or whatever the case is. Um, but it's just a, it, to me, it is a incredible way to be able to attack what we've been talking about. And like I said, for me, it's been life-changing just because it reframes a lot of the bullshit that was already in my head. Um, and it's reframed a lot of it to be like, what's important right now, you know, cause all the other shit isn't important. Yeah. That was so good to hear. Um, you know, I've had other programs mentioned save a warrior has come up a lot of times and that sounds like a very similar thing talking about the childhood trauma and there's a very strong physical teamwork element to that as well but what save a warrior does well it sounds like what um you know this uh, uh letter core does well as well is the follow-up you know one of the big criticisms i've heard of the iff's center you know our, our firefighter one in the top corner of the country is they they did well when they were there, but then they went home to all the problems and their family, you know, hadn't had any chance to heal and there wasn't really a good follow-up. Now, that may have changed now, but that was one of the things I heard over and over again earlier on. So, you know, that, that continuous tribe, that continuous community holding each other accountable and having people to talk to sounds like a very important part of the whole process. Definitely. Oh, it's the most important part, I think. Um, I forget what they call it, but yeah, that follow-up is absolutely important because like you said, I mean, you, you know, you've had, you've had, uh, Sebastian Younger on your program and he has an amazing book called tribe. And that book is, I mean, truly like people, when you get into these situations where you have to, you know, I know his book deals a lot with war and stuff like that, but in a sense, you're kind of going to war and emotional war when you're dealing with a lot of these problems. And so coming out of that, I mean, yeah, you got, you got to feel like you're belong, you belong in a community. And to be honest with you, uh, James, I, I, you know, Copland was, it was cool. You know, I mean, you know, I've kicked in doors and locked people up and did all this stuff and chase bad guys and all that. But at the end of the day, like, I'll tell you, I only speak to two people two people in 20 years that are actual, one of them still in the department, another one, you know, quit and left. Um, and, uh, he's down in, you know, Florida, but yeah, I mean, just to have that tribe though, of people that actually know you, people that actually know your pain. Um, you know, there was a quote that they said down there when I was in that leader core and they said that, um, and I'm going to butcher it. Uh, but it's pretty much like, you know, if you, you find me a man that knows my pain, then you found my friend. Right. Love like that. that's truly, yeah. I mean, that's truly what it is. You know, you, we can talk uh, guns and cars and girls and all this other bullshit. Talk about the distillery of the whiskey that you went to. We can, you know, go to the ball game and, you know, rah, rah and do all this other stuff. But like, there's no, there's, that's easy. That's easy shit. 
You know what I mean? That's guy shit, quote unquote. But really, like the stuff that makes a connection and the people that are actually going to be there when you're pro- when you're dead and gone and they're at your funeral, it's going to be the people that know your pain, that knew your pain, and that you were able to open up to about that pain. Absolutely. Well, you talked about kicking indoors. Um, you know, I just want to touch on a couple of specialty units that you that you were in. Um, I know you were in SWAT, but one area I haven't really discussed very much on here. It'd be interesting to get your perspective is the prostitution element. So again, to me, when I look at you know the ripple effect of prohibition, you know, I mean, there's you have to be a genius to figure out that that's related to that, you know, whether it's a user trying to justify their own use or whether it's more of a product of addiction from the household they were in. Um, and then you have the trafficking element and it's just horrendous. So, you know, what were you seeing? You know, what, what kind of women were, well, what kind of, what kind of backgrounds were you finding that they were ending up on the streets? Mm, man. Um, variations, to be honest. So when I was with the gang unit, they were trafficking, when I say they, the gang uh, and gangs that we investigated, they would traffic young girls, you know, teenagers. Um, And the way that they would do it is they would pretty much offer them parties and having fun. And you have these young girls that are very either naive or they have no family life. Because if you take a girl, let's say, and I would say the majority of the girls that were trafficked that I knew about were straight from El Salvador or Guatemala or, you know, different parts of Central America. And they came up here illegally, um, came through the border and they had a sponsor. And so their sponsor was taking care of them. So their original family, their mom or dad is still back in whatever home country that they left. So they're paying that, that family's paying like, I don't know how much, 10, $20,000 to a coyote. And so this girl is up here, let's say she's 13 to 18 years old. And so once she's separated from her family, she's living up here with somebody who knows what that sponsor, who it is. Um, But they're living in a condition where they don't know the language. They don't have a family structure. They go to school, but they don't know anything that goes on with the school because you're coming in. You don't, I mean, yeah, they have ESL and all this other stuff, but you know, you're, you're in there with other Spanish speaking kids. And so what are you going to revert to? You're going to learn English? Uh, no, you're going to speak your own, your own language and you're going to have familiarities. So then that's the perfect breeding ground for a lot of these gangs because what happens is then they start forming relationships because then they can say, oh, why don't you come hang out with us? You know, uh, your family's not here. We'll be your family pretty much. And that's what happens. And so they start moving in. And then next thing you know, this girl's hanging out. All of a sudden, you got a guy that's talking about, well, come to this party. And next thing you know, there's a bunch of guys around. And all of a sudden, she's getting gang raped, <laughs> you know, or she's, you know, you either do this or we'll kill you type of thing. Um, and it's a sad state of affairs um, because and then uh, and even even to go to that point, you have these girls that let's say the mom or the dad finally gets the enough money for themselves to get up, you know, with them. And then all of a sudden that could be a couple years later, 
And now all of a sudden you have this, you know, disconnected family structure where now mom or dad is there, but guess what? Mom or dad has to work in order to make money. And so next thing you know, mom and dad is never around because they're working two or three jobs to make ends meet just for the apartment. And what does the girl have to do? The girl is going to, again, be very swayed to hanging out um, when there's no other structure going on. So, (coughs) excuse me. So that's what, that's what I've seen. I've also seen, um, you know, a lot of internet stuff, but, you know, I I used to, I was in another unit, um, they called the neighborhood patrol unit and we did, uh, some drug interdiction and we, we used to do, uh, prostitution things. We used to call it, uh, dialing for hookers. Um, but it was pretty much going on back page and calling those ads and, you know, uh, meeting these women, um, at their hotel room. And for whatever reason, some of these women were crossing state lines, you know, Backpage made it easy for these women to actually be kind of their own pimp. You know, they didn't have to have a pimp to, you know, put an ad on Backpage in order to make money. Um, Some of the women lived out of state, you know, and they said, oh, it's good money in Northern Virginia and stuff like that. So as far as that was concerned, you know, and, and, and one of them, she, she became an informant. She actually, um, she was a heroin user. She, she did that stuff to support her habit, you know, and she became an actual very integral, uh, informant for, um, a lot of stuff. And, you know, unfortunately she did die of an overdose, but, um, but yeah, I mean, those were th- those are just several examples of what I've seen when it came to the prostitution stuff and the trafficking. Yeah, well, again, you know, you and I get we I always tell you we get to look behind the curtain. I think that the perspective from police, fire, EMS in a society in a country is so unique yet rarely used, rarely you know, mined as it were. Um, because you know, I think I mean, God, the prostitution element of all you know the young women that i ran on it was tragic you know and i actually used to talk about the the um language barrier i had a hungarian woman to me who was trafficked to canada and it was the same thing completely disconnected she initially thought she was going to be an english teacher you know or or a you know hungarian teacher over there um and you know just complete smoke and mirrors and then they stole her passport and then they started trumping up all these fake like fees that she had to pay back and it was just yeah it was just incrementally pushing the walls out until she was full-on prostituting um and now she's an advocate now she you know she escaped finally and now she protects women she has her own kind of non-profit but you look at models like um uh, the netherlands for example and it seems like there are safer ways to do it i think you know again addressing addiction empowering the illicit shitbags of the world you know the underworld (laughs) is definitely one of those things but aside from that, you know, how what's your perspective on legalization of prostitution? Because to me, again, a complete layman, I'm not in law enforcement at all, to pull that out of the shadows and have it where our women are safe. And maybe it's in a brothel where there is a security guard, you know, and they're not going to be, you know, beaten or murdered. I mean, we, we, we had that several times where I worked, you know, you find them dead, um, you know, with a pretty unique perspective of 20 years in law enforcement and including some special uh, groups that you're a member of. 
I, I, you hardly ever hear that discussed here. So if you were king for a day, what would you do to, to affect that? Oh, man. <laughs> um, well, let me say this. I think, I think it'd be easy to say just legalize it. But even when you legalize something, there's always going to be predators, right? There's always going to be people that are going to try to monopolize and they're going to try to recruit and going to try to do the same stuff. It's just that it's going to be legal. Um, I know Germany for just my, you know, just because I know, um, I have friends that live there. They have legal prostitution and they do have brothels, but what they do is they actually bring in medical staff like every three months to test all the women. And, you know, they actually keep track of like who's supposed to be there and the names and all that stuff. Um, now, as far as how they got there, I have no clue. I don't know. You know, did they get trafficked? Did they get taken? I don't know. Um, so what is my thought process? I think, unfortunately, I think even when you make something legal like that, you're going to still have that bad element where they're going to, um, you're going to have the it may be a legal market in the sense that these women are in a place. Yes. The government is making money and taxing it. Yes. Um, they're getting tested and yes, you can go there legally. And it seems like, I think on the face, I think it looks like it could be a safe environment, but at the same time, just like anything else, a legal business, like legal welfare, right? Welfare is, you know, it's out there, but people abuse it. I had a case where, they were they were literally uh, extorting money from the people that they were trying to help. And the reason that they were extorting money, when I say they, the government gave, they said that the people that live in this community, which is all um, which is all section eight housing, government housing, they said that the people, they'll vote for their own board in order to make decisions within the community. So, because they'll look after it better than we can. Well, what happened was the people that were head of this board were extorting money from people that were living in that community. And they were actually extorting money from people that were trying to get in. And they had, the government had a list, a legal list. And I'll get back to how this ties into the, to the, to the prostitution, but you had people that were pretty much going off of a government list that said, no, you have to let these people in and it's free of charge. What they did is they took that list and they went down and they actually, if somebody called, they would actually tell them, oh no, the apartment's already been taken. And they would actually deny people the actual right to services that they, they need. And what they were doing is they were actually going and seeing, they would get people that were already there that may not have, um, they don't need to be there, but they would say, okay, well, if you want to stay here, you need to pay us like $300 every couple of weeks in order for you to stay in this apartment. Who is they? Who are we talking the, about? The, 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 the elected board, which is the elected board of people from the community. These women lived in the Section 8 community and they were elected the president and the vice president. So they made the decisions on how the quote unquote leasing of these units would go. And this was happening for like 10 or 15 years. So they were exploiting the system. So when I say that, 
they're going to exploit the system with prostitution too, which I'm sure they already have in some certain locales. So as far as the trafficking stuff, oh man, you know, I think, I think that's just going to happen regardless because you're going to have to get, you're going to have to keep a product there. Right. Um, I don't think everybody, I don't think women are just going to be like, oh, I'm going to go be a legal prostitute. I think there's going to be a way to recruit them. It may look legal, but they're going to get there. And next thing you know, it's like, oh, no, you signed this contract. And it's pretty much like it could be it could be either coerced or, you know, type of some type of slave labor. Um, so I think in that aspect, I think it's. You know, I think it's a slippery slope. I think if you legalize it, obviously it looks good on paper, but I think there's still a lot of shady stuff going on behind the scenes. Yeah, it was an interesting perspective. And thank you, because I mean, you've seen a lot more than I have. Just the one thing that I've I've noticed is sometimes there's resistance to an idea because it won't fix everything. You know, whereas to me, maybe this would solve some of them. You know, and then allow you know law enforcement to focus on the more deviant people out there. Yeah. The one thing I did think about, though, is, you know, you and I don't know what happens. Uh, maybe this is something to look into. But how many women that are in the porn industry are trafficked into the porn industry? I have no clue. But I'll be honest with you. I mean, the porn industry is what, like a $60 billion a year industry? And you have, you know, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say I've never looked at it because I have. But at the same time, like, like there's beautiful women that go into that industry. And it's like, how does that happen? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I guess if that can be legal um, and it is a legal job to have, you know, when you legalize prostitution, yeah, I think it could alleviate a lot of the trafficking aspect because then you'll have people. But then at the same time, then I think you have a whole different aspect of you know, how are you affecting society in the sense of like, I have a daughter. So my daughter is growing up in an age where, uh, WAP, you know, wet ass pussy is like the number one song and it's played in clubs and girls are out here, you know, popping their ass and doing all this crazy shit. And I'm sitting here like, what, what is my daughter going to go into? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, how is it going to degenerate itself to the point where, it's just like, you know, we're just going to start seeing people have sex on the street and it's just a normal thing and nobody's going to care. Yeah, no, it's it's bizarre. I mean, it really is. I saw a funny, I think he was like Norwegian or something, but a guy did a rock cover of Wet Ass Pussy and it was this like puppet cat in the shower. It was hilarious. You got to look it up. <laughs> but I mean, That's that, you know, what a, what a great spotlight on this last couple of years. Like there's been so much insanity you know, and that's one of them. Like, you know, oh, you, you know, this cancel culture. But meanwhile, what's playing on the radio to our children is this, you know, and then again, you talk about porn. You want a reflection on the mental health of society. Why? I mean, sex is beautiful, but why is this like rape focused sex so predominant? Why is that sought after? Multiple men, you know, anal all these things that you know some people might be into you know whatever floats your boat but it's not love making it's far from love making so when did that become like a rage thing you know and then oh i'm gonna pay to watch someone get raped because that'll be fun i'll get my, my rocks off you know so it's it's it when you take a step back there are elements of our society like how the fuck did we get here it's a, it is man it's scary 
it's a uh, yeah and to have a daughter um <laughs> trust me she will know how to do jujitsu box and also know how to shoot a nine mil and probably an ar by the time she's like 15 you know what i mean that's that's my mindset i just want to raise honestly i want to raise a warrior um you know from a standpoint of not only mentally but just even physically and you know how did we get here james there's so many things we could talk about about how we got here the one thing i did think about when you said about the music is candace owens came out and she had a great quote uh about that and she pretty much said like if you want to know and it's exactly what you said if you want to know the um just the thought process or even the morales of a society just look to the current number one hit on a song you know and back in the days where you know my mom was growing up it was like you know um the beatles you know talking about you know love <laughs> and you know uh you have uh i don't know marvin gay you know and stuff like that where it did talk about love and it was more of a tender you know thing and then now it's just yeah how did we get here i think everything's sexualized man everything there's nothing about that what we do like even even in police land i mean it's just everything is a sexualized thing like you oh like i'm gay or i'm trans or i'm this or i'm that it's like all over the place everything that we do there has to be some element of sexual uh, connotation to it yeah well i think the perfect example is social media so i'm sure everyone has seen accounts where it's i mean to me again another lens into the mental health and narcissism that social media has created is insane and narcissism is absolutely mental well health you, you know you're trying to fill a void that's unfillable but you can just be a woman in a bikini do absolutely nothing except take pictures of yourself and have millions of followers. And as you probably found, the people that you know I love, a lot of them who are truly out there writing books and changing the world, and it's like, you know, meh, like, you know, 3,000 followers. And not that you measure <laughs> someone by followers, but that's eyeballs. That's influence. That's children's minds. And so, yeah, sex sells. And it's the easiest shortcut to, you know, the clickbait. And so, yeah, you want to make a really shit song? Talk about, you know, a lubricated vagina for four minutes, <laughs> you right. know, and it's, it's it's so sad. There's no substance to it at all. And it's not me being an old granddad. A lot of the music I like, you know, is, is angry and it's full of profanity and all kinds of stuff, but it relates to a, you know, some sort of like feeling in the world. But when you just resort to basically music porn to sell your music, that's being exposed to all our children, then yeah, I mean, you got to draw a line somewhere. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I don't want to, I don't care about sounding old because the thing is, is I think there's a, there's a morale that's being lost on our, on our culture, you know, and I think it coincides with how we look at authority figures too. You know, um, I had a good, uh, I had a pastor one time talk about how, you know, when you start taking and regardless of whether somebody's religious or not, this isn't for me to, you know, this isn't me, you know, proselytizing to anybody. It's just that I thought it was kind of um, poignant, but he was like, you know, if you look at back in the day, and I'm sure it was probably the same, I don't know whether in Britain or not, but it seemed like the church had more of a say-so within the communities, meaning like, 
you know, people went to church and they would talk to their pastors and their pastors kind of had some type of effect, right? You know, or the morale of that community had some effect with what was going on um, with the church. And when you take certain aspects of church or God, whatever, you know, out of it, um, I think you, you set up that community or society to fail because then you leave them to their own devices, which is, I mean, what kind of crazy shit do we think about just on a daily basis? And now you're saying it's okay, you know? Um, yeah, that's a very, very slippery slope. And I don't know, I don't know how you, I don't know how you come back from that. You know, I don't know how you come back from the fact that now, if you say that, how do you draw the line with authority on that? How do you draw the line with, you know, you're talking about uh, defunding the police. You're talking about, you know, pretty much, I think in Portland, or they tried to, where they just said like, you know, it was going to be regular citizens that were going to respond to your call, you know, or whatever the case was. And they disbanded the police. And obviously in these areas, Chicago, New York, you know, Seattle, Portland, these major cities, I think homicide rates and crime rates have like tripled or quadrupled within the last couple of years. And I think it speaks to a lot of what's going on, not only musically, but just culturally. Like we're just saying that we do whatever you want. You know, we're, we're self-aggrandizing through Twitter, through TikTok, through Facebook, through all these things where it's about you. You're, you're the most important thing in the world. And it's like, no, like we're, we've left the community aspect of what we've talked about with mental health, right? Like we just talked about community as far as mental health, but, but the ills of what I see is the absolute narcissism to where it's like, no, it's not about community. It's about me. And even if it is about community, it's ultimately about me because I'm the one that is part of this community. So therefore I may like that the the community may be in the background, but that's not the highlight. And so then it turns into the cops. Cause it's like, I don't have to listen to you because I'm kind of my own King. I'm my own queen in this kingdom that I live in. So therefore, why do I have to listen to you? I didn't appoint you, uh, my law and order of anything. And so you have all this mindset where, you know, if you, if you can be your own in a sense, like King and queen, then you have a lot of suffering, but then at the same time, you have a lot of people that are doing what they're doing now, which is you know, they're ambushing cops, they're throwing water on cops, they're, you know, MFing them, they're just treating them like, you know, like every cop is, you know, some, you know, piece of shit out there. And it's just crazy. And and you got, and you have other communities that you have executive boards and people that are on board with that, which is insane to me, right? Like, you know, not to get on my pulpit, but yeah, I mean, that shit's got to stop. <laughs> you got to, you got, you have to draw a line. No, absolutely. And, and it's funny because when you're talking about that, you know, I think there are definitely some areas where, you know, morality has had challenges, you know, when, for example, you know, you have like any man and his dog can become a pastor, a preacher, you know, and then you see these mega churches and you're like, okay, so where's this money going again? You know, exactly. so I think that hasn't, hasn't helped some of the, the organized religions. But you mentioned about, you know, kind of vigilantism, this whole Kyle Rittenhouse thing which again, i not very well read on. But taking a step back, that riot, I did research this, the riot was started by a shooting 
which was a guy who, you know, had domestic abuse charges and, you know, was resisting, supposedly was holding a knife. So then there was a shooting and then the riot started. And now this kid drives all the way to the riot because he's Chuck Norris and he's going to take care of everyone. And now it's like, we'll pick a side. Are you, do you think he's 100% innocent or 100% guilty? And I'm there again, like so many things like, well, hold on, time out. That in that moment was self-defense as per our constitution. However, where's the accountability of that fucking little shit driving all that way to a riot with a with a weapon? And where's the accountability for the other rioters running around mm-hmm. with weapons and what else? You know, where's the accountability for the riot even being instigated and people not saying, dude, he had a knife. This isn't a, <laughs> this isn't even a rioter You know what I mean? So reverse right. engineering. So we're not. Right. I, one of the things I I see is like you said. No one's willing to have the whole conversation anymore. Not no one, but you know, the, the, the kind of, again, the, the, the shiny object people. They just yeah. will well, pick a side. Are you pro-vax or you're anti-vax? Well, what about obesity? What about nutrition? What about, you know what I mean? No one wants to talk yeah. about that. Are you defund yeah. the peace or, or pro-police? I'm pro-good police and I'm fund good police. <laughs> Standing in the middle again. So that's what I see, you know, with this Kyle thing. Yes, he got off. Great for him and his family. People are dead, and they probably wouldn't be if he hadn't shown up in the first place. So where's the, as you said, the community accountability? If that had happened in an ancient tribal element, and he'd gone mm. off looking for a fight somewhere else, what would his village have done to him? You know, but we're not holding people accountable. We're not standing in the middle looking at the big picture. And I think that's what I see. As you said, and you nailed it. I am my own entity. And the moment that we allowed ourselves to think like that and abandon the tribe, abandon the community, that is the beginning of the downfall. And it's up to all the normal people to, to, you know, push those fucking idiots on the outside and us all unify together. And then once they realize that they're the anomaly, not the masses, then they'll come back in, hopefully having learned their lesson. But if we allow them to divide us and we start fragmenting, that will be the downfall. Simple. Yeah. Yeah. uh, You know, the Kyle Rittenhouse thing, I'll start with that. Um, I don't, so there's a lot of ripple effects, right? Like you throw a rock into a river, uh, that rock starts a, uh, starts a shit ton of ripples and it goes, wow. So to even start with the riots, you have to start with why they were rioting. You know, that whole Jacob Blake case, I I know it uh, pretty good. Um, I know that that guy was a piece of shit. Now, do you shoot somebody because they're a piece of shit? No. No, but, but then reverse engineer the even more. Why, why yeah, was he a piece the, of shit? The, what was yeah, his what's the context? Like? Right. What's the context of that case? The context is his wife, or his girlfriend had a warrant, went and got a warrant because he sexually assaulted her in front of, which it says in the report, in front of their five-year-old daughter. In front of. Okay. This guy has also previous domestic assault cases on him um, from from whatever relationship has a rap sheet, but specifically was called police were called to that incident because he had a warrant. He had a he had a arrestable warrant uh, for that uh, sexual assault. When he comes, when the police officer gets there and meets this person, you have somebody and from a police standpoint, you have to you have to be very um aware of somebody's criminal history because if they have a propensity for violence wouldn't you want to know that i would 
I would want to know if they're carrying a weapon. I would want to know if they've been locked up with, a, you know, a concealed knife or a weapon in the past. Um, did they try to use it? Did they try to assault somebody with that weapon? I have no clue. So when I get there, I want to know who I'm dealing with and the possibility of what's going to happen or what could happen. So that officer, when he dealt with him, um, just like I did in a lot of cases, I would do my background before I even showed up on scene. And so I knew that, okay, this could, this could go bad. Um, but I still have to have a plan. And when I get and so I'm only guesstimating here on the officer's mindset. I can only say that when he got there and Jacob Blake's acting the way he's acting, that officer, if you watch that video, Jacob Blake reaches into his van once on the other side and he was already outside of the van. The officer was already giving him commands and didn't put hands on him yet, but Jacob Blake goes into that van. Now, based off of uh, Graham versus Connor and based off of everything I just talked about, his propensity for violence, his, um, all those things, all those factors, the fact that he was pacing back and forth, the fact that he was denying any type of command from the police and the fact that he could, uh, he, he's retreating into a vehicle that is unknown to that officer, you don't know what's in there. You don't know if there's a gun in there, a knife or anything. That officer could have shot him right there based off of that, right? All those circumstances right there, totality of circumstances, Graham versus Connor, I guarantee you if that officer shot him right there, he would have been found good. It, was a, it would have been a good shoot. But because society at that point in time has vilified officers for their actions of using any type of force, what happens? He doesn't really engage until Jacob Blake pulls back out and then he follows him around to the front of the car. And at that point, and it's in the report, at that point, Jacob Blake tells the officer, I got something for you. Now, I don't know about you, James, but if you're doing that to me and I'm running around and I go to the front of the car and I say, hey, James, I got something for your ass. What do you think I'm going to go? I'm going to go get you a teddy bear. A kiss. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that officer follows him and then literally follows him to the point where Jacob Blake starts leaning into the car. At that point, that's when he shoots him and he shoots him seven times and then Jacob Blake didn't die. He was paralyzed. Uh, he, you know, whatever charges, all that stuff. And then that's where the riot starts. But the, but the, but the line, the clickbait was white officer shoots unarmed black man. No context, zero context. Nobody knows anything. About, nobody's crying for the victim. The true victim is this woman who got, sexually assaulted in front of her five-year-old from a person who's a convicted felon, right? Like, we're not talking about that. Nobody has even said anything about that. They just say, oh, this white guy who's an officer shoots this black guy and he's unarmed and that's it. And then that, next thing you know, you have people swarming down in Kenosha and all of a sudden you have these riots. You have, you know, the, the villagers are burning everything. You know, and, and it was at that point in time, it was kind of commonplace for that to happen. And you have Kyle Rittenhouse, based on his testimony, he was there to protect the businesses. He worked there at some point in time. I don't know anything other than that. 
Kenosha didn't, <laughs> didn't have their own police department that was paid to protect businesses. They did. They did. And I don't know. But but the thing is, they, you know, this is what's baffling to me. And this happened with the Freddie Gray in Baltimore. Freddie Gray, when he died under police custody, the mayor, Muriel Bowser, no, not Muriel Bowser. I forget her name. But the mayor at the point in time in Baltimore, she just pretty much said, let them get their steam out. And she allowed she told the police to stand down and not do anything and let them pretty much burn down the city. So that was also a standard, a precedent that has been set. And now you have Kenosha. All I'm saying is that for me, there's so many players that made this situation fan, fanned the flames of everything that was going on at the time. If none of that happened, if they actually told the context, if they actually, for most of this, Michael Brown, if they told the context, if they didn't have to lie and have people clickbait and do all these things, if they didn't do these things, right, we would not be in the state that we're in right now, James. We'd be in a totally different state. You know, we're, we're, we're hearing about people. So here, here's the thing. Yes. Uh, I don't know. Should Kyle have been there? The fact is, is that he was the other fact is, is that these other three guys, one of them, which had a nine millimeter handgun in his hand. And he said that he was about to shoot him in the case. So regardless of that, you have two people that are possibly playing vigilantes. And one of them, and one of them loses, right? You got two other guys that are chasing somebody with an AR, and one of them tries to grab them. I'm sorry, but if I see somebody with an AR, I'm not chasing after them, nor am I going to try to grab the gun. Now, am I saying that's warranted for him to shoot? I don't know because I'm not in Kyle Rittenhouse's mind. I don't know what that standard is for him as far as him fearing for his life. Just like I would never know what that is for the standard of any police officer when they're in that situation. I will never speak on that because guess what? I don't, I'm not in that position. And the courts have even said, you cannot judge anything based off of 2020 hindsight. That's based on the grand factors, right? Like those are things that it's extremely important to take into account. So when we look at this, it's not just Kyle. It's also these other people, like you said, and it's also the inception of how everything got started. You have media to blame where they're literally just trying to get clickbait and they're saying, oh, here we go again. Another black guy gets killed by a white cop. But yet the numbers don't even support the fact of everything that they were trying to drive. The narrative is, oh, every cops are shooting blacks on a on an escalated level never seen before. And that's bullshit. In 2019, there was nine when George Floyd happened. And even before that, Michael Brown, there were nine unarmed blacks that were killed under police custody or in a police shooting. And they were all quote unquote justified shoots. If you look at those cases, how many, how many whites were killed? 18, 18 white individuals were killed. And all you hear about is black, 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 black. Ferguson, the majority of their police department is, I want to say, 75 to 80 percent black. 
Um, you look at LA right now, LA, their majority of their police department is they're heavily Latino and black. The whites are like a minority on that department. Baltimore is the same way. DC is the same way. Chicago is heavily the same way. But yet we're talking about a narrative that is just, you know, to me, you look at uh, the book of um, the war on cops from, um, oh my gosh, um, I forget her name. I have the book. It's a great book, but she is a, um, she's a statistician by trade. Very, very just sound numbers. And she literally goes into all the numbers of boom, 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 boom. And it talks about these false narratives and it's it, because she goes into the numbers. She wants to see like, oh, is this true? And based off of everything that I've read, even DOJ statistics, this is all bullshit. And that's the problem with this is that we have a community that is being led by false, by false things. Because guess what? I can send you an article today and it can have some sexy thing at top. And all of a sudden you could be like, oh, that's true. But yet you never click on the article and you never actually read the article. And it may say something completely different. And I think that's what's happening is the instant gratification of being like, yep, I'm right. That's it. That's ha that happened. And nobody's fact checking. Nobody's doing anything. Nobody's researching. Nobody's doing any of that stuff. Nobody's waiting for the system to actually work. And everything is just a knee jerk reaction to, oh, a black guy got killed. But yet we don't scream about Chicago. We don't scream about New York where black on black crime is literally 90% of the murders that are happening in the city. Young kids, young black kids are getting murdered every single day. But yet we're having riots over three white guys that were in a riot <laughs> in a community that they didn't even belong to. And another white guy shot three white guys. But yet we're screaming about this as it's a racial component to it. Like, what are we doing? Like, honestly, I get to a point where it's just like how we live in idiocracy. I really believe that we live in an idiocracy. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for respecting. Well, that's the thing. So, so to explain that one thought process took, I don't know, I wasn't looking at the, the timer, probably 10 minutes. That's just that one, that one thing, but that's it. You reverse engineer. As I said, there's all those factors. And prior to that one perp reverse engineer his childhood and how did he get there? So, you know, I, I, I agree a hundred percent. Like even um, one of my guests, Chad Lyman pointed out, I never thought of it this way. Amazing guy. He was like, by the way, the George Floyd case, they treated, um, the officer the, the appropriately. They, they fired him immediately, they arrested him, they charged him, they booked him, and that was it. So what was the rioting for? Like, you know, it was absolutely completely wrong, but everything that you would do if that happened in any way, shape, or form in the community was done to that officer. So I'm like, you know what, that's, that's, a, that's another great perspective from someone who truly understands this. And I don't, I'm a firefighter. I'm a, you know, a guy sitting right. in, a, in an office in Ocala. But one thing, <laughs> like I said, that I got from this written house thing was... It's the black or white, you know, are you for or are you against? And the reality is, no, you know, it's this, what is the core? What is the nucleus of the fact that we're seeing this in America, but in Iceland or Norway or Japan, they're just getting about their day. 
They're not worried about being murdered on the streets. They're not having to form gangs. They're not, you know, none of this stuff. So where is that conversation? Hey, why is it that we're all murdering each other? Why are, why are our children's grown up in communities and literally executing each other because one lives in this street and one lives in this street? You know, I mean, th- these are, these are the bigger picture conversations. So when I see all the focus on, oh, Kyle, this is, this is one minute tragedy in this giant fucking jigsaw that is what we've discussed for the last hour and a half. <laughs> exactly. It is. Uh, I, I couldn't put it any better. It is. I mean, all these things don't have some simple, um, it's not just some simple thing that we see as the result of it. It's a, it's so many different things that have led up to all of this, right? Just even from that one case, but just from a societal standpoint, it's, it's been going on for decades. We've been leading up to this, not just over the past few years, COVID didn't just do this. Uh, you know, George Floyd didn't just happen, didn't just do this. You know, the music, um, the politics, the politics of everything, you know, the binary thought process of you're either here or you're in that camp. All those things have been happening and they've been revved up and revved up and revved up. It's just that now we're what I can see is like we're getting to a tipping point, you know, so. Yeah. No, I agree. Well, speaking of, of of tipping points, I guess that's a good segue. I want to make sure that we talk about your journey before we kind of close up. So clearly, I mean, we just have one soundbite of, you know, the frustration within law enforcement, um, you know, organizational stress is another area that affected me personally, like being in administration or being under people that were you know, horrendous. I had no business being in that position and made the aggressive firefighters I work with lives miserable every single day. So talk to me about when you started, um, you know, finding yourself kind of slipping down and then where was the lowest point that you got before you started pulling yourself out? I would say uh, the last few years of my career, um, I, I did have a bad supervisor Bad supervisors are more reticent than than non-bad supervisors, unfortunately, uh, from my experience. Uh, but this one supervisor was just, uh, just to give you an example, uh, he was a lieutenant, I was a sergeant, um, and a newly lieutenant coming to a unit, you would think he would want to get the gauge and kind of bridge build with his sergeant, you know, make a team. None of that. He would literally walk past my office, not say a word. I may say something or he may nod at me just because I passed him in the hallway um, at like noon. <laughs> and, and that's what that's that's literally what I was under. Um, and then you have somebody who is very divisive. So he's not only divisive, but he's also just uh like I said, man, his, his leadership qualities were just horrendous. You know, I, if I was a Lieutenant, I'd want to call in my Sergeant. I'd want to talk to him. I'd want to get to know him. I'd want to get to know what's going on with his, you know, uh, what's his supervisor style, you know, kind of give him, uh, expectations that I may have, you know, and where I'd like to see things go. And that never happened, you know, as a, as a subordinate, you shouldn't be the one setting those meetings to ask your supervisor, Hey, what do you expect of me? <laughs> you know, it should, that shouldn't be the thing. So that coupled with the fact that, you know, there was a lot of not 
turmoil, but there was a lot of um, political kind of stuff going on because MS-13 was rampant. We found two bodies dug up, uh, dug in shallow graves at the time. We had a young girl that was murdered. Um, the numbers were skyrocketing as far as undocumented kids that were coming across the border. And, you know, it was just very political. And Northern Virginia is a hotbed for MS and uh, especially at that time. So it was, it was just very, it was one of those things where, you know, it's kind of like a trifecta of, of shit. Not only do I have a bad supervisor, the politics of the day, you know, and being in a unit that was extremely heavily focused on. And then at the same time, you know, my daughter, who at that time was like two years old, she, um, she got RSV and she was actually in the hospital for, I want to say four days and, you know, dealing with that, dealing with some home life issues and stuff like that. It was one of my lowest points. Uh, I left the department, um, took an early retirement towards the end there. At the same time, you had at the back end where you had a lot of this stuff going on where George Floyd and defund the police and that whole sentiment was um, coming down heavy. And then we also had a chief that was very, I hate to use the word liberal, but that that's what he was. Um, just to give you an example, uh, the county that I worked for, the department had a 95, 96% approval rating based on an outside study that came in that did accrediting for the department. That's, a, that's, that's amazing. Like, I would want to live there. You know, I mean, you know, that's, that's a great County. Um, but anyways, so my, the chief at the time, for whatever reason, took it upon himself to go to the NAACP granted, no, nobody was, there was nothing happening here in Northern Virginia. Nobody was saying, Oh, cops are racist. There was no cases. There was nothing. Um, and the chief goes out and, you know, Ben, like he takes a picture in the middle of the road, kneeling down with his fist up uh, with NAACP head of this chapter up here. And it just caused like absolute, the, 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 the optics of that was just terrible for the morale for the department. And it was, it was bad all the way around in a lot of different areas, but that was just kind of like the icing on the cake. The FOP wrote a scathing thing where uh, they took uh, a study and pretty much was like, you know, there was a no confidence vote for the chief. Um, all types of stuff that was happening. And one thing that uh, broke the camel's back was an officer tased somebody and just based off without the specifics, um, it's a, it was a high profile uh, case that happened here. And uh, the officer tased an individual who was on a mental distress or a possible drug, you know, um, psychosis, whatever the case is, but tased him. Officer's white. Guy got tased is black. Uh, guy starts screaming that he can't breathe, even though he was standing and he was actually in front of medics at the time. And all the officers were doing was just holding his shoulders so he couldn't move. That was it. Uh, it was all on video. And Two hours later, the chief and the newly minted uh, Commonwealth attorney came out and charged the officer with three aggravated assault charges. And uh, yeah, I think that case is still being, you know, it's still 
being delayed and hurt or whatever the case is, but that officer got charged. He lost his job, got fired and don't know where he is, but, uh, it's a tragic, tragic case. And, um, all because I think this is my opinion only all because of the optics that was happening. And the chief wanted to be in the side of the optics that he was placating to and not looking out for his troops and not giving the direction of you guys are doing a great job. Studies show that you guys are doing a great job. The community says you guys are doing a great job. I think you're doing a great job. You know, I got your back and no, that's not what happened. So yeah, that, that in a nutshell is, you know, we're broke the camel's back. And uh, I think the department is actually still trying to fill a mass exodus of like 250 to 300 officers. So what was that transition out like for you? Because you work basically 20 years, you know, in, in the same department. And, uh, you know, as I've talked about a lot, you know, that can be a challenge for us. You know, we, when we're in the uniform, we identify as a cop or the firefighter. We have that tribe, we have that community, even if maybe not in that specific group that you were in. Um, you know, we have purpose as well. You know, we, we get to drive home knowing we made a difference in some way, shape or form. So was, were you able to transition out well or did you struggle after that? I did struggle some because obviously you got to find a different path. I did law enforcement for 20 years. I didn't know how to uh, bolster my, not only my resume, but myself to a larger work pool. And, um, so, um, I did struggle, but I did find, um, a niche in executive protection, uh, which is kind of like dignitary out West. It's more celebrity type protection and stuff like that. But I did that here in the DC area for about a year. And then I ended up going from there to the school system where it was, um, it was less, it, it was more stable, you know, healthcare, you know, government jobs, stuff like that. And I was, uh, I was in security for the school system. And then from there, um, because I made contacts through the executive protection stuff, I got, I, I befriended, uh, some guys that worked for, um, government agency that does dignitary protection in reality for, for that agency. And they, um, they definitely, you know, were like, Hey, you need to put in, you need to put in. So just recently I've graduated from, uh, FLETC, which is, uh, the federal law enforcement training Academy down in Georgia, uh, three months down there. And I'm in that process, you know, I'm back, <laughs> I'm back in law enforcement, but it's, it's not, and I, man, I, I don't want to, poo-poo on what it is, but it's not law enforcement in its traditional sense of what I did for 20 years. It's uh, force protection. You know, it's, it's, you know, fixed posts and, you know, you have, you know, installations that you got to look out for. And most of the people that you're protecting are government officials and, you know, high important uh, people and stuff like that. So, you know, it's not me running and gunning and, you know, tracking down so-and-so and doing this. So it's a lot. Um, it's a, it's a good job. It's a great job. And I look at it as, you know, hopefully it sets me up for my twilight years in retirement. Beautiful. You sound heartbroken though. I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of, um, you know, not heartbroken is the wrong way to, to segue, but you know, just just happiness, I guess. Um, 
you ended up creating uh, Better Blue. So talk to me about the inception of that and Brownie and the Blue podcast and what you're doing on the altruistic side. So, yeah, uh, you know, out of that uh, depth of just, you know, what I went through towards the end there from the department, I started thinking about my own mental health. And then I, I did a deep dive. You know, I went into therapy, um, had to figure a lot of shit out and had to, as you've talked about it, I had to reverse engineer a lot of stuff. Um, and that has led to, I started thinking like, I need to start telling, I, I just need to start talking. And I go, oh, a podcast. Maybe I'll do a podcast on, you know, policing and how like, you know, kind of behind the scenes policing. In my first few episodes, that's what it was. And I started Brownie in Blue podcast. And from there, I started, um, you know, people were like, you need to get guests, <laughs> you know, like you have good information, but it's, it, you know, they were, they were, be, they were being critical in a very constructive way. So, but yeah, that's how, that's how that started. And then, um, you know, I, that's how I got to meet you because I ended up uh, not only through therapy, but just these group stuff, the community of law enforcement, I was going to, uh, you know, therapy session and you were a guest speaker, um, which was awesome. And uh, that's how we got connected. So from there, I started thinking about, man, there's so many um, just first responders that, as you touched on earlier, the insurance companies don't cover specific therapy. They don't cover PTSD. They don't cover if you want to, you know, let's say you have a drug addiction or alcohol addiction, you know, they don't cover you to go they have EAP employee assistance programs, but those are usually people that are, that have no clue what police work is or firefighter work is, you know, they're very untrained. And um, so I started thinking, you know, officers need uh, a place to where they don't have to go through their agency and they can have somebody or a group that can, has the um, money to be able to send them to an in-treatment program if they need it or send them to, you know, their first three or four, you know, uh, one-on-ones with the PTSD therapist or with a cognitive specialist or, you know, whatever that is, that's going to help them and they don't have to pay out of pocket. So I started thinking on that and that's where better blue, uh, better meaning, you know, you're in blue, you're in law enforcement, you know, I want you to be better coming out of this, you know, not worse. So that's how that came up. And I started doing that. And, um, you know, and and just to be very blunt, you know, me going back into law enforcement and going into training has kind of delayed certain things, but, you know, I feel like I'm back and, uh, you know, trying to get myself out there again and really trying to help out. So. Beautiful. Hopefully that answered your questions. No, it did. And I had a great conversation with you. Was it reps for responders or trauma behind the badge? I forget which reps. One. Reps, yep. yeah. Reps. Yeah. So shout yep. out to those guys. Um, so yeah, I mean, so with the podcast and with Better Blue, let's go to that first. Where can people find those online? Brownie and Blue and Better Blue can be found at better B-E-T-T-E-R dash blue B-L-U-E dot org and so if you go there and there's a podcast um there's actually a podcast tab you can just tap on that and that'll bring up brownie in blue podcast 
and that's how they can find me. They can also find me on Instagram. I don't do Twitter and I don't do Facebook. So Instagram and that website. Beautiful. Well, the first of the main closing questions, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Oh man. Yes. So I would recommend this book for anybody, especially if you have family members that are struggling with addiction, if you yourself are struggling with addiction, um, or just even mentally trying to figure out what addiction looks like, uh, I would recommend Gabor Mate's In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. It's an amazing book. Beautiful. It's on my bookshelf. I haven't actually read it yet. Um, it's one of the ones uh, I got to get to, but Johan yeah, Hari's gotta, stuff, he talks a lot about his work in there. Yeah, it's a great book. You should definitely read it. Brilliant. All right. Well, then next question. Is there a movie and or documentary that you love? Um, I love all types of documentaries. I, I always tell people my favorite movie of all time is Gladiator. I just love it because it just has such a, a hero warrior mentality. You know, it's kind of everything that I think <laughs> most people in law enforcement, military, and, you know, they just kind of aspire to do and be. Brilliant. Perfect. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Oh, man. If you could get Gabor Mate to come on, man, he needs to come on. Yeah. I agree. I, I, yeah. <laughs> he would be amazing. He would be. Um, and actually, Peter, Peter Crone, I, I gave a shout out just based off of his, uh, his quote that I heard. If you could get him to come on too, I mean, he'd be, he'd be great, you know, because he does that whole reverse engineering, but from a, from a mental standpoint, you know, and I think, uh, we're all, st uh, tons of people out here are stuck, man. They're stuck. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I recognize the name. I'm not sure. He's not Australian, is he? He may be. He has a, he has a funny accent like you. <laughs> he might be there. <laughs> I don't know if I recognize him or not. Maybe I've seen a video before. All right. Well, then the very last question, what do you do to decompress? Oh, man. Um, I love to go work out. So I try to work out every day. Uh, make may take one rest day. But uh, yeah, I love working out. And um, to be honest with you, decompression. So one of the things mental health wise for me is uh, the quality of time that I spend with my daughter. And I say quality time because we can spend time and it's just time, right? Um, I want to spend quality time with her. So part of that quality time is I give her, like I play games with her. Like I'll do teacups. I'll do, I'll do, you know, uh, cartwheels and try to do back bends and all that stuff that she likes to do because ultimately, you know, we're all kids and we just got to get back to that. And when I look at her, you know, that's engaging her at her level, at her mind. And it's not about me. Um, and so that to me makes an escape for me from all the other, uh, all the other stuff that goes on in my life. I love it. Yeah. I think I'm guilty of, of looking at some of my time with my son or sons as quality time when it's not, yes, we're physically present, but you know, I'm thinking about the podcast or, you know, whatever. So yeah, that's a very, very important, um, perspectives to understand when we're truly engaged with our children yeah brilliant yeah, mate. definitely 
Well, I just want to say thank you. Thank you again. You know, so many people come on here that share, you know, such, such, you know, deep, deep, um, trauma that they experience. And, and to, to do that on a public platform not only takes courage, but, you know, I understand it takes a little piece. You kind of go in there for a moment and reliving that, but the, the ripple effect, the, the impact that it makes people listening, probably many people who have something in their younger years that they maybe haven't either identified or at least talked about. Um, you know, it's so important. So I just want to say thank you so much, mate, for being so courageous and so transparent and, and, you know, so generous with your time today. Well, I appreciate it, James. I appreciate the opportunity. And if this does help anybody, you know, definitely uh, reach out to you and you definitely reach out to me because I'm here to talk. So like I said, James, thank you so much. Thank you.